God created us with the ability to see the material world. Amen? Amen. And it's good. I, I am often um, uh, just amazed by what is and things we get to see. Uh, in fact, early this morning, how many saw the full moon? Uh, yeah, and I, when I went out early this morning, the yard was lit up. Mm-hmm. It was like there was a, a light on top of the house. The backyard was lit up. It was, And, you know, there are just so many things like that. Actually, I stood at one point looking at the moon and thinking, people went there. Like, that's incredible. And I'm, I'm looking at it and, you know, this distance, and they, you know, people actually got there. You know, these brilliant minds developed something and were able to send people to that place and they could see it. And I'm, I just, I look at the, the material world and I think God has allowed us to see it. And God has, allows us to see with our minds too. Uh, you know, in terms of understanding, we see things. You know, and people use that expression, oh, I see. Somebody's explaining something, oh, I see. It's like, oh, I get it. And um, as well, we hear of, I don't know whether it would be just mental seeing or whether you'd say it's even uh, a spiritual thing but people see things have vision in terms of outcome they see a something that should be or that they desire and they would call it vision we call people like that visionaries somebody sees something that should be or a particular outcome and we call them visionaries i uh, read a story And it was a while ago, so some of the details are a little uh, foggy in my memory. But at the grand opening of one of the Disney parks, uh, or some particular feature at one of the Disney parks, um, after Walt Disney had already passed away, um, someone apparently said to Walt Disney's wife, oh, I wish Walt was here to see this. I wish Walt could see this. Uh, apparently, his wife said to him, oh, he already did. He he did see it. It, That's why it's here. And, you know, a person who had a, you know, oh, I've got this vision for this great park, and kids will go there, and they'll love it, and, you know, the happiest place on earth, that kind of thing. And I haven't been to the Florida one, but I've been to the one in L.A. or Anaheim. And it, it is pretty extraordinary. And, you know, a visionary saw that. Uh, I don't, well, I won't say I don't think. I am confident no one who has ever lived matched the clarity of vision that Jesus had. Because, of course, and I I think I can say that confidently because his vision of things, knowing what the outcomes should be, could be, his vision was not polluted by sin. There was no clouding of his mind or of his perspective. There was no selfishness or pride um, kind of fouling it up. I mean, even the best among us uh, would acknowledge that they've got sin and that it can impact them, that it can skew their perspective. But Jesus had nothing like that ever clouding his judgment or his understanding. He saw the true order of things, God first, and then everything else 
under God. He, he could see like that. Often, Jesus spoke many times about blindness and not just physical blindness, which he healed, but he also, on occasion, he equated blindness to our fallen state. We, we can't see until, as we were singing, the grace of God comes along and opens us up. I mean, that song, Amazing Grace, has resonated with generations now. Why? Because it's so relevant for everybody. We can understand the sentiments that um, John Newton, sorry, I always have to think, Isaac Newton, John Newton. Okay, John Newton. The, the, um, the sentiments that he penned, really, I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, but now I see. I see what? I see reality. I see the truth. I was a sinner, a wretched sinner, and the grace of God not only cleaned me up, we'll get into more of that, but it also opened my eyes to see that I needed to be cleaned. I needed to be saved until the grace of God began to work on me. I thought I was pretty good. I thought it was pretty decent. Then the grace of God came, and thank God for it. It's like I realized I'm a wretch. Right? The grace of God comes and you see what you really are. You see who God really is. The grace of God opens our eyes to see him as he is. The grace of God comes to see, let us see who we are and what is going on in the world. And it's, it's a good thing. The grace of God does this. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this. I quote this verse very often in prayer. It says, the God of this world, God, small g, meaning Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. People who don't believe in Christ, there is a blindness where at times I find myself, you know, annoyed by things going on in the world. And then it comes back at times and I realize, yeah, well, what do I expect? The God of this world has blinded the minds. You see people pushing for things that seem so wicked. And you think, how could you be pushing for that? Well, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Thank God for the grace of God that enables us to see. That enables us to see clearly. And God gives us clearer vision of what we're to pursue in our lives. Namely him, of course. But he, this is kind of a funny thing. It sounds like you're like mixing metaphors. God speaks vision. He speaks so that we can see. He speaks words so that we can see. Sounds sort of funny. The things we hear and that resonate in our hearts open our eyes to see. Amen? So let's read John chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, 
he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I just want to read the next verse because it's great. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. These, I've spoken these things. Jesus just says, I've done this so that your joy may be full. That my joy, which this is on the eve of the cross, that Jesus says, I'm speaking this to you that my joy may be in you. I I just read this week, uh, an old commentator said, a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. Well, it doesn't mean we're going to live the life of a party. We're going to experience some things. We're going to suffer. There will be. The Bible promises it. But we're to be people of joy. Amen? So briefly, a bit of cultural context. And I'm going to try again to get to something that I've been trying to get to for a couple of weeks. And I'll hopefully succeed this week. Jesus hadn't just pulled an image out of nowhere when he started talking about the vine. It wasn't like he stayed up the night before thinking, okay, I need a good metaphor for the guys tomorrow. Uh, my last day with them, I better think of something good. No, he didn't have to, uh, you know, it didn't come out of left field. Uh, as with all of his parables and all of his metaphors, he took something that his hearers knew really well. I mean, Jesus was the master of that. Everything he spoke about was something that the people of that culture were really familiar with so that if they were listening, it was like, oh, I think I know what he means. You know, that, this just makes sense. We know about, you know, fish and fishermen. We know about planting seeds. Well, in this case, we know about vines. This uh, thing, uh, the it's, it's called viticulture or viniculture, meaning a culture regarding the growing of grapes and producing of wine. They were really familiar with it. We're kind of removed from it, even though, you know, many people in our culture know something about wine itself, but we're kind of removed from the production. Not so with Israel. They were surrounded by this. The, the front of the temple had this golden vine on it, they, they were used to seeing that thing everywhere they went. Very likely, while Jesus, in this chapter even, was taking the disciples toward the Garden of Gethsemane, it's very possible that they walked past the front of the temple and saw that. Maybe that's what he used, why he used that. Or they walked past vines, and they, they, were, they were just surrounded by them all the time. And they, these vines would grow rapidly, and apparently they'd let them grow close to the ground with little forked sticks to keep them just off the ground. And they would, they would have known all about this. They would have seen people working on the vines. 
doing the things that they're doing. They would have known people who owned them. They would have known the whole process of this. Partly, too, not just because it was there in Israel surrounding them and they're looking at it, but also because at least four of the major prophets of their culture used the vine as an illustration of the nation of Israel. In fact, some say it was the national symbol of Israel, that they were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the three prophets who have the, you know, the, the largest volume of uh, writing in the Old Testament. All three of them talk about the vine, as well as Hosea. They talk about the vine a lot. But here's something about it. It's always used to show Israel's degeneration and failure. That seems kind of harsh. But they, it, it says God took it, this vine from Egypt and planted it in this new garden. But then the prophecy goes on in every case to show that it's a wild vine. Or it's also called an empty vine, which means it bore no fruit. It didn't do what it was made to do. And so these people were used to, they knew the symbol of the vine, and they would have known um, as people of the, um, the Old Testament that they, they heard the prophets a lot. They knew that the prophets equated Israel to the vine, but not favorably, always in a negative way. So here's Jesus at the end of his life, the eve of the cross, and he says, I'm the true vine, and my father's the vine dresser. And actually, the way it's worded is, if we don't get it in the English, I'm the true vine, but if we were to take it the... Grammatically, the way it's worded in Greek, the way it was recorded, is Jesus made a contrast. He said, I am the vine, the true. Meaning, I'm the vine, the true vine. So in one word, he's saying, everything that came before was a foreshadowing of me. Israel was a foreshadowing of what is reality in me. It was a picture of the vine of these people drawing their life from the Father. And, you know, it's, it wasn't like they failed in absolutely everything. It was an imperfect foreshadowing. But now here's Jesus. I'm the vine, the true vine, the real deal. A life-giving, in me, you'll find a life-giving, living ongoing, abiding union with God. An unbroken one. Because unlike Israel, there's no sin to ever break the flow of life in Jesus. And then he says right away, again, this relationship. I even like the wording of it. I am, dot, 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 my father is. It's like the two of them, they're inseparable. I am the true vine, the father is the vine dresser. Meaning, I'm the true vine. God's going to get fruit out of me. And he's closely related. He's, he's sovereignly working 
in the, on that vine. And again, they would have known, oh, they would have seen vine dressers down on their hands and knees, you know, clipping off those dead branches, making sure that, you know, no uh, rodents or bugs or anything were getting at it. They'd have been tending that thing carefully and skillfully. And he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And he's addressing it with great care and skill. Why? To produce fruit. He wants fruit. Jesus, just a few chapters back, had spoken a parable about the vine, about the vineyard, and the father or the owner sending back his servants and his son to get the produce of that vine. That's what God desires, is fruit from the vine. So, something everyone would have witnessed would have been pruning. They all would have seen little stacks of dead branches that they would let dry up because here's another thing. I know last week I mentioned how the wood from a vine is kind of useless. There was even a command that just people, citizens, around the temple would bring wood to keep the sacrifices burning in the temple. One thing they all knew they weren't to bring was the wood from the vine because it would just kind of smolder and... (laughs) You know, it wouldn't actually burn. It was kind of lousy until they would let it dry, dry, dry. Then they'd have a big bonfire and get rid of it all. But everybody there would have seen a vine dresser uh, pruning a vine. It was essential. In fact, when they would plant a new vine, they would prune it drastically for three years and wouldn't allow it to bear any fruit until it had grown to a certain size and they could get the very best fruit out of it. In order to have the healthiest vine with the best fruit, pruning was kind of severe. I used to work at, uh, for the Alberta government, and I worked in this building, and it was called the Twin Atria. And it was two towers, and in the middle was this huge indoor garden. And it was kind of like a jungle. And, you know, the, the offices on the ground floor of this thing opened right up into this sort of indoor jungle. And there would be, um, uh, in the time I, would, I worked there, gardeners would come in. And they had plants in the rest of the building too. And they would tend to all of them as well as in this uh, little jungle. And there was a young lady that worked there and she knew the stuff, but man... To uh, someone who doesn't really, you know, know a lot about plants, she seemed severe. I mean, she came in there with shears and attacked those things. And, you know, they're, they're looking good and, you know, lots of green and that. And she'd attack it and for a short time, it would look bad. Like she'd attack it and really chop things down. And, you know, I had hair at the time and I jokingly said, gosh, I'll never get a haircut from you because, you know, I don't look like this. But she would attack them and like, I mean, hack everything down. We had a guy come years ago, a gardener friend, come to our house. We have three um, cherry trees on our front lawn and they look terrible now but they looked terrible then and he came and pruned them and we had neighbors coming and saying are you sure he knew what he was doing and he was a master gardener but he he hacked them down to where there were just a few main uh, trunks sticking out and the first year there were 
you know, when the cherry blossoms come out, there were a few cherry blossoms on big trunks, and it, you know, it looked kind of pathetic. But then after that, boy, they were healthy and beautiful. He knew. He did know what he was doing. But it seemed more drastic than what I would have chosen. I would have cut off a branch here and there, and, and the trees would have looked sick, like they kind of do now, actually, um, they, you know, because we haven't seen that guy for 15 years. <laughs> so our cherry trees look bad. But he knew what to do. God knows what to do. He would go at the vine, and he would get... He would prune, and it seems more drastic what he's doing in you and me than what we might choose. God, I think I'm a pretty decent guy. Maybe you could lop this part off. I'll let you, I'll let you cut off this part, my bad temper. Uh, and I know you're shocked right now thinking, I can't believe that about John. But, you know, okay, I'm going to let God lop off my bad temper, but don't touch this. And <laughs> it's like, touch what (laughs) you know it's almost like if i'm trying to reserve it from god i don't mean he's cruel and he just goes after but if something is elevated and too precious for god to come near it might be the thing and i you probably remember i've told you the story that i a year after i got saved i felt that god said i want you to give up music completely and i was like, oh. and I tried to cut deals with them. I, I did. I said, I, I even you know did this little kind of ceremony. I set my guitars before, before them, and I just prayed over them. These are dedicated to you. No, no, you know, John, take the wax out of your ears, son. You're, you're not quite hearing what I'm saying. I'm not saying I need your guitars. I could have a lot of them. <laughs> I'm telling you, I want you to quit. And I'm thinking, no, that couldn't be. I'm hearing wrong. I'm just, I have a distorted picture of God. And then, okay, when I finally thought, maybe he's saying that, I thought, oh, it's kind of like Abraham. Take Isaac up, but he doesn't. He's not really going to let him kill him. He's going to stop him at the last minute. So I'm going to save you and me the time and just cut right to the part where you, you know, where you say, you know, yeah, stop. <laughs> and he didn't. He wanted to prune that part. And you say, well, you're still playing, so are you still disobeying him? No. I got to the point where I just said, fine. I, I in a moment, uh, praying with a few people, I had a perspective of this puny thing compared to everything that I've been promised, everything I've already received in Christ and everything I've been promised. And I was like, oh, God, what am I hanging on to? Like, you know, and people sometimes say, oh, well, if God's doing something like that, he must have something better for you. Well, maybe not. I didn't care at the moment. It was like, oh, fine. You know what? I I have a perspective. I want you more than any other thing. Take it. And I felt immediately... And it, it, I felt immediately that God just said, that's what I need. I've got to be first. I've got to be first in your life, or that thing is your God. That thing is an idol. If I can't have it, if I can't touch it. And so it came back with peace. I knew I wasn't resisting God, but I, I knew that I knew that I'd handed it over. And he said, good. 
But I, I also have to say, I always felt like it was an inch away from God requiring it again. It's like, he can have it. He knows it. I offered it when he, when he finally, you know, backed me into a corner. God comes and he prunes and it seems more drastic. And here's the picture. The vine has, you know, you have the main trunk. That's Jesus. And there are branches. Some branches might grow some leaves, but they're never going to be fruitful. I even have enough of an eye to see on some of the greenery in our yard that eh, those branches are just, you know, they call them suckers. They're coming out. There's nothing good going to come from that thing. I'm cutting it off as low to the base as I can. Other ones are going to produce. God knows which ones. And on the vine, this is an interesting thing. On a branch, there might be, uh, you know, I used that branch last week. It, it might come along like this, but you've got a little stub sticking up where a branch had tried to come. And this word, look at the word that is used in John, uh, in uh, verse uh, 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it or cleans it. He trims it clean is the word. That's why in the next verse it says, you are already clean. It seemed like he's talking about pruning and then he says you're already clean. The word means he trims it clean. So here's this little stub sticking up out of the branch. Those little stubs or some of those little pieces of a branch that were sticking out there, that's where disease and decay go. It isn't just worthless, it's worse than worthless. It's actually the thing that's going to affect the growth of the rest of that branch. It, it could have disease in it or decay, and if the, a vin, if the a vine dresser doesn't clean it off and do it right, and in fact, that gardener who trimmed our cherry trees said to me, you have to cut them here, and he said, if you leave this up, that's where rot's going to set in on this piece of a stump, especially in our wet climate. That thing's going to get all wet and soft, and if you allow it to do it, it's going to go into the good part of the trunk, which in some cases has, I see it happening. It's going to go in and affect it. So when God says, no, we got to prune, it's like, oh, God, that's too harsh. Nope, he knows what needs to happen to get rid of any part of us that might carry disease or decay. Why? Again, because he wants to produce fruit through us. He wants maximum fruitfulness. He says even the branches that do bear fruit, he's going to prune them so they bear more fruit. He's going to keep doing that. We'll touch on fruit next week. But here's the very simple place I want to bring us to today. Part of our vision for 2020. How does God trim us and clean us? Look at verse 3. You are already clean or trimmed clean because of the, the what? The word which I have spoken to you. You're already clean. You're being trimmed clean. And, that's, and it's going to keep happening. That's why a few verses later, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. This idea, he, because of the word which I've spoken to you, you're clean. You're trimmed clean. 
He prunes us with his word. These are, there are in this book words of hope, words of wisdom, words of love and inspiration and encouragement. It's like there are places in the Bible, many of them, where you read and you just know, I think of 1 John 3, 3. I think that it, uh, I think it's verse 3 that says, you know, we're the, uh, we, see ourselves as the children of God, and it says, and such you are. It's like, I love that verse. It's like, that's what you are. You see yourself that way through this? That's because that's what you are. There are those kinds of words that encourage, and I read some of the Psalms, and it's like, oh, I'm uplifted. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name that you notice me, that you pay attention to me. That, those are words of hope and encouragement. There, but there are words of conviction and repentance and correction and discipline. And all of them, God uses to trim and prune and transform us into fruitful branches that are in living union with him. Amen? He uses all of them. There, how many, let me ask, how many in the last year have read a verse out of the Bible that you sort of resisted? that it sort of hit you kind of wrong, and it was almost like, Ugh. yeah, they're there. If, if we're not reading any words like that in the Bible, I mean, honestly, we're probably not reading it. Uh, or we're reading, you know, one, one psalm or only in one place. There are words that cut across. They, they just, they, oh, that's an uncomfortable one. This... Now, this message, I feel, could be presented from a thousand texts in the Bible. But here in this passage, Jesus calls us to find our life in him. Out of his, on this sort of ongoing living union, our lives produce good results that honor God. And in this passage, I want to echo Jesus. Abide in him and pursue having his words abiding in you. Pursue that. If, if, if you are weak at all in the spirit, I want to venture to say it has probably something to do with this not getting inside. Now that, I, I honestly, I don't mean that at all to be a condemning thing, but we are weak as the people of God if this isn't in us. If we're not getting this in us. If we're not reading the word and getting it in us, like Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Last week we talked about abiding, remain, continue on, live. You live in me and my words live in you. You remain in me and my words remain in you. They need to keep coming in. They need to keep coming in. They need to keep having their work. It's like, Ah, after, you know, however many years now, 38 years of walking with the Lord, I, I know that that word has to, I have to give it place in my life or I'm going to revert. I'm going to just be a fruitless branch on the vine. I, I can't afford that. The, the word has to be in there. Notice all the way through this passage. Verse 3, you're clean 
because of the word which I spoke to you. Verse 7, my words abide in you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. This is my commandment that you love one another. Verse 14, if you do what I command, all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. This I command you all the way through. Jesus is saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You need my word. And, you know, in um, uh, Luke chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, there's a, you know, the story where Martha and Mary have Jesus over uh, for lunch. And Martha's busy and she finally comes in and says, you know, Master, you know, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work? And there's Mary sitting at his feet listening to his word. She said, she tells Jesus, tell her to come and help me. And Jesus said, I, I just don't believe there was any harshness in this at all. In fact, I wonder if he had a smile on his face, almost like, you know, Martha, we're going to work something out here, but not the way you think. He says, really, there's only, there are few things necessary, really only one. Mary's chosen the good part, and it won't be taken from her. It's, I heard somebody say before, you know, had, had, if, if he, he, they were sort of adding to the story saying, Jesus might have just said, why don't you sit down, and when, it, when I'm done, we'll make lunch together. We'll all do it. Something would have worked out. But here's the point. Even serving Jesus has to take a back seat to hearing him speak. It's like I can't just say, oh, but Jesus, I'm trying to be a pastor and I'm, you know, putting a message together and I'm calling this person and I'm trying to set this up and do this and, you know, and then we have life group, etc. And it's like, at times, it's like, stop! Like, Jesus just saying, would you just sit down? I need you to be with me. Like, I need you to stop. I need you to hear me. You're running off doing things. You're, you're, a, you're a little Martha. Well, stop. Be a Mary for a bit. Sit down and let's listen. Just listen to my word. There's no substitute for God's word. Amen? Tell somebody. Just say there's no substitute for God's word. We can't skip this word and have life. We can't expect victory over sin without this word. We we can't do it. So here's what I want to do today. We've got just a few minutes left, and I want to give you a, a few things, a handful of things, as part of our Vision 2020, a vision for this year. We've, uh, what, had... Today's the ninth, so 40 days, actually. This is the 40th day of this year. So about 326 days left, since it's a leap year. Um, 326 days left, if you don't count today. Did I add something wrong? Oh, I heard a whisper. (laughs) Um, 326 days. There are about 1,200 days. Um, chapters in the Bible, 1,189. You can read the whole Bible in a year if you read about three and a quarter chapters per day. Three and a 
quarter chapters. That really is pretty small, especially when you take some like Psalm 117. You know, it's three verses. <laughs> Woo, today I'm really, <laughs> really knocking them down today. Uh, you know, then you get to Psalm 119. Whoa. Okay, there, there are just about three and a quarter chapters a day. You can read the whole Bible. In 2020, I want to encourage you, and I won't ask anybody to put their hand up because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but as Christians, I have known Christians. I knew somebody who was an, a minister. And when we were talking one time, he said to me, oh, yeah, that book of the Bible, you know, I don't think I've ever read it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you haven't read the entire Bible? So I slapped him hard. No, I didn't. I, honestly, it's like it was, it was Michael. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> no, I'm, he, a guy is a minister, a licensed minister, and he's telling me, He's never read the whole Bible. I am, that is astounding to me. But you know what? As Christians, we need to read the whole Bible. I, I don't mean this as a boast. But early in my Christian walk, nobody even told me that I should do that. Somehow it just seemed like, there's our manual. I need to read it. I'm a believer now. There's got to be stuff in there or God would have done something different. It would have been a much different book. It would have been shorter or something. But I'm reading the whole thing. And I have forced myself, I say that because there are books in there, sections of the Bible, that I don't particularly enjoy. Like, you know, it's easy to read some of the Psalms. And then there are some sections in the prophets and that where it's like, good night, what is he talking about? Yeah, or, you know, things like, you know, the, the boundaries in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. And then, you know, for, uh, you know, for this tribe, for, you know, Simeon, start from the Oak of Mamre and go to the edge of the Jordan at you know, sucketh, and then you go to, and they have these things, and it's like none of those places mean anything, but it lays it out, and I'm reading that because maybe there's something in there. I heard of somebody getting saved because of the begats, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. That somebody got saved because of that because they looked, and they were from a culture where they said, all right, this actually is traced to something. This isn't just some, you know, bogus kind of, pie in the sky thing that somebody made up. We need to read this Bible. So in this year, with 40 days already gone, you would still have to read less than four chapters a day to finish the whole thing from this point to the end of the year. Now, I say this. I know that there are sections that are tough going, like the eel slog through and it won't seem as relevant. So you might want to grab one of those reading plans that has you reading New Testament and some of the Old Testament, because sometimes, you know, uh, you know you'll get into a section where it's kind of like for, for weeks, you might be saying, man, I'm getting nothing out of this. It seems like it's, you know, very irrelevant to life in the 21st century. So read the Bible, read the whole thing. Now, let me say this, then study it. Study it. Like when you come to something and it seems to twig, 
or you come to something and you don't understand it, look, look up a word or find out. Check. Ask somebody. Study it. Find out, well, wait a minute. Why would he say that right there? Read it, but don't just read it. That's why I like to call it Bible intake because you don't just read it. You need to think about it. Give it some time. Meditate on it. That's a word that I know got hijacked by Eastern religions. And so we hear the word meditate and it sounds like, woo, something spooky. But meditating is in the Bible. You know, meditate on this word. Then you'll have good success. You'll prosper and have good success, the word says. Meditate on it. Think it over. Mull it over. They say it's kind of like this picture of, you know, cows have four stomachs and they, they eat the grass and they chew it. They call it chewing the cud. And they digest it. It goes to one stomach. And then they kind of... And it comes back up. And they chew it. Okay, that's a gross picture. But they chew it some more. Get some more nutrients out of it. And it goes back down. And, and up. So that even when they're not eating on the you know, ground, they're going over it. And they're getting something more out of it. Do it with the word. Read it. And then meditate on it. So you'll have that picture in your mind to really inspire you. You know. Uh, pray it. I found this to be one of the greatest blessings in my, uh, both my prayer life and my time with the word. I pray the Psalms. Sometimes I do one verse and that's all I needed. It only got me launched and then it goes into some encounter with God or, or some uh, focus where I'm praying about something. But pray the word because often I'll find myself wandering around and I stand when I pray because I, if I'm sitting or kneeling, I, I get drowsy. And so I stand up and I do better. And I'm standing and I'm walking around and I'm saying, so he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. And I start thinking, okay, what does he mean? He inclined to me. To incline means he leaned toward me. I waited for the Lord, and he, I got his attention. It's like, hey, I like that, and I'm praying. He heard my cry. Oh, so he heard my cry. So it wasn't waiting patiently in silence. I was waiting patiently, but I made myself known. And then he lifted me out of the miry clay. Praying the word, I find, adds some depth. It makes it real. It, he, he is, his, the Holy Spirit takes it and he makes it alive. So read the word, study the word, meditate on the word, pray the word, speak the word, discuss it, discuss it with others. I love that in home group. We have a Bible discussion and I see something and then somebody else from their perspective sees something else and it's like, oh yeah, I, I only saw it from, you know, this and you, this person sees something else. Speak it, discuss it, inquire, ask questions. Ask questions of the word. God, why would you say that and why would you say it here? Here's some really important ones with the word. Believe it. Believe the word. Uh, I just read this the other day, and I want to read another section of this to close. But I read this uh, the other day. From a book called Radical by a pastor in the um, southeastern states. I forget now where his church is. It is somewhere like Alabama or Tennessee or something like this. I forget. Um, but he's, he says this. From the outset, you need to commit to believe whatever Jesus says. As a Christian, 
it would be a grave mistake to come to Jesus and say, let me hear what you have to say, and then I'll decide whether or not I like it. (laughs) If you approach Jesus this way, you will never truly hear what he has to say. You have to say yes to the words of Jesus before you even hear them. Like you come, okay, Jesus, I I really want to hear your word. And then I'll decide (laughs) if if I'm going to live it. I, I believe in Jesus, so I trust that anything he has to tell me is actually for my good, even if it means some pain on the way there, some pruning or something. It's ultimately for my good. Um, So I'm going to believe it. Then listen to it preached. Listen to the word. You know, now we're in a a generation where, man, the access to uh, really great Bible teaching is so easy with our phone anywhere we are get it or listen to the word too you can go to you version and listen to the word so that you'll cover things that weren't even there then apply it and do it god how does this verse apply to my life and act on it i want to read this last thing though just in um in closing this is uh this guy david platt he starts by talking about visiting Uh, an underground church, he says, in Asia. He doesn't say where it is uh, because uh, just a couple weeks ago, somebody was at our house talking about the underground church in China. That's where I can envision this, and he may very well have been speaking about that. But he says this, just imagine going to a worship gathering in one of those house churches in this particular Asian nation. Not an all-day training in the word, just a normal three-hour worship service late in the evening. The Asian believer, and let me just stop for a second. The reason he says not an all-day affair is because he says he went to this church and they said, we don't know much about the Old Testament. Could you teach it to us? And he said, sure, how much? And they said, all of it. (laughs) And they wanted him over the course of several days, he did an Old Testament survey. This is what each book of the Old Testament, sort of a rough idea of what it's about. And then when he was done that, they said, we want the whole New Testament too. Only he was leaving in a day, so he had to do it in a day. Just a, a, here's, here's what the New Testament's about in, in you know, a synopsis. The Asian believer who is taking you to this service gives you the instructions. Put on dark pants and a jacket with a hood on it. We will put you in the back of our car and drive you into the village. Please keep your hood on and your face down. When you arrive in the village under the cover of night, another believer... Um, meets you at the door of the car follow me he says with your hood over your head you crawl out of the car keep your face toward the ground you begin to walk with your eyes fixed on the feet of the man in front of you as he leads you down a long and winding path with a small flashlight you hear more and more footsteps around you as you progress down the trail then finally you round the corner and walk into a small room despite its size 60 believers have crammed into it They are all ages from precious little girls to 70-year-old men. They are sitting either on the floor or on small stools lined shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their Bibles in their laps. The roof is low and one light, uh, sorry, one light bulb dangles from the middle of the ceiling as the sole source of illumination. 
no sound system, no band, no guitar, no entertainment, no cushioned chairs, no heated or air-conditioned building, nothing but the people of God and the Word of God. And strangely, that's enough. God's Word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches like this one. His Word is enough for millions of other believers who huddle in African jungles, South American rainforests, Middle Eastern cities. But is His Word enough for us? I read that and I am so convicted because I know it's true. I, I got to go to Indonesia uh, years ago and do a, several different worship services. But when I think of the best of them, it was in a stairwell in a, in a, on a university campus in a stairwell. It was just concrete around us. And the people rolled out some carpets, sat on the carpets, and we began to sing. And their, their passion to encounter God, we did one song for about half an hour. It just went on. And then they went into sort of an open worship kind of thing, you know, where there were no words on, the, on a screen or anything. In fact, there wasn't a screen. But they just sang and they worshipped. They wanted to encounter God. And they were just hungry for him and for his word. And this, I, I, I was convicted by that at how I want certain comforts and lots of things. And we're accustomed to lots of things. But... In many places in the world, boy, just having the word. Oh, we want it. Please teach us the whole Old Testament. Man, I've got, I don't even know how many Bibles in our house. You know, translations like crazy. And I can read them and they're sitting out. And Then there are places where, my goodness, they, they uh, have like a common Bible that they pass around. Oh, today's my day with the word. Boy. We've got a treasure chest in this book. Take it, please. Don't take it for granted. Read this thing. Get it off the page, into your heart, into your head, into your life, into your lifestyle. Take it. Vision 2020. In 2020, let's be people of this word. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's be stronger with this. Let's be knowledgeable. Let's... Follow it. Let's believe it. Let's get the word. Amen? Can we do that? Somebody say amen. Like you mean it. And Father, I pray that you do this in our midst. That you would put the word in us. That we wouldn't sort of have a feast laid out before us. But just sort of um, pick at it. And have a snack now and then. God, I pray we'd be people that would feast on your word. That would get it into us that would be transformed by it, that you do the pruning work in our lives through it. We thank you for it, God, in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. Amen.